0: Welcome to another edition of Business Leaders Podcast. Today, as a guest, we have Jeff Rose. He's the founder and CEO of Think Topic. It's a tech firm in Boulder, Colorado that was founded a short two years ago. Think Topic combines the latest discoveries in machine learning with expertise in systems engineering. Rather than a typical data science company that might produce some reports or generate some insights, Think Topic builds tools and systems that are meant to empower the business owner. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Super. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. It's a great day in Boulder, Colorado. The kids are all out, and college looks like it's in full swing in the springtime in Boulder.
1: But if you would, tell us a little bit about your company and what it is that you do. Sure. So Think Topic is a machine learning-focused software consultancy technology company. Um, We really bootstrapped by doing client work over the last two, three years. And um, over time, what we hope to do is really become more of like a private R&D lab with strategic partnerships with companies and areas that we're interested in working in. And uh, we'll just really focus on the technology in the background and um, they'll have sales and marketing. And so um, we work in a broad range of different types of problems, some computer vision, data science, signal processing, Doing some work in biotech, um, financial tech, uh, kind of real wide range of areas. So um, it's a pretty diverse set of kind of problems we tackle. As I think about the subjects that you're you're talking about in your
0: business, and thinking back, um, and and we talked before the show a little bit about uh, you had some travel and education opportunities in Europe, and traveled around there for a while, and. And ended up back, I think, in London working with a tech company. Yep. And you were the lead research engineer, is that right? For the.
1: I was one of the first engineers hired at DeepMind, yeah. DeepMind. Yeah. And
0: for DeepMind, did DeepMind do similar things then to what you're doing now?
1: No. So we were really focused on more fundamental AI research. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually kind of came at that more because I had. Uh, A kind of serious interest or hobby in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And so I had some uh, colleagues from grad school who I had um, done a bunch of reading groups and neuroscience uh, kind of study groups with. And so at DeepMind, we were trying to combine neuroscience and machine learning and, uh, you know, computation to see if we could um, push the envelope a bit and make some quicker strides in improving AI? You know, when when I think about that is, so if I'm a business owner and I go, well,
0: I've just hired this particular company to help me improve function or AI, I might be left a little cold trying to figure out what exactly I improved. So if you would, for who would be, without disclosing anything you're not supposed to, what would be a typical client at that time and what type of problem
1: would you solve for them? So DeepMind, we didn't have any clients. Okay. Um, That was a pure research company. And so um, really the goal was to just build a top-tier research lab. Okay. And um, at the time, uh, yeah, so the whole time I was there, I was entirely doing research. Except at the end, we did have an applied team that was um, looking at taking some of the ideas from the research side and, uh, looking at how they could be applied in industry. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it had been determined whether we would be coming out with the product ourselves or selling it. But, um, then we were acquired by Google before that, before anything came out.
0: So when, when you post being acquired by Google, so you're unemployed, I presume, and you're overseas in London and take us from the journey there to when you came back stateside and started Think Topic.
1: Yeah. You know, I had been living in um, Amsterdam for a few years and then in London, and I really just craved sun and mountains and kind of a healthier lifestyle. And so um, part of it was really making a call about, did I want to set up my career in London for good or at least for Mm -hmm. a decade more? Or did I want to go off and do my own thing? Um, mm-hmm. And part of that was about you know just personal reasons and general quality of life and where I wanted to be. And part of it was about um, having the autonomy to pursue my own interests. I think after being in grad school for so long, I really wanted to get more applied and mm-hmm. actually uh, build systems, not spend quite as much time um, kind of, you know, in research paper reading seminar kind of mode. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh out after London, I actually moved to Indonesia for a year, lived in Bali and uh had a pretty relaxed lifestyle and then um started getting antsy and already for probably a year before leaving, I had been, you know, really reading a lot of books about startups and listening to podcasts and kind of gearing up mentally, I'd say, to, um, to start something.
0: You know, for thinking for the person that's going, well, my company just got bought out and I'm gonna go and, and chill out somewhere for a little while and then I'm thinking about starting a business. What Do you remember what podcasts or
1: books were influential for you at the time? At the time I was listening to one podcast called foundation Mm -hmm. that I think Kevin Rose, uh, produced and another one, uh, from scratch. And, um, generally I was, you know, reading a lot of, um, blogs and books about business. I like biographies Mm -hmm. and, um, just started talking a lot with my brother about, uh, product ideas and just business ideas. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of just a whole whole range of things.
0: So was your brother also involved in a similar field
1: as you? Yeah, he actually uh, started in music production and then uh, went back for computer science. Okay. Uh, I kind of tried to get him hooked by musical programming, <laughs> and uh, it worked, luckily. You um, know,
0: we, we were talking beforehand and, and we are talking a little bit about the influences that sort of took you in the direction of, um, of programming. And, you know, and I think about some of the folks out there nowadays, um, how your mom got you involved or interested in, in the computer space. If you could walk us through that just a little bit for some of these folks that are maybe trying to encourage their kids.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I had a really lucky childhood in that regard. My mom was... Uh, the art mom at our elementary school doing a lot of, you know, clay projects and painting. And we actually had a kiln in our garage and she got into desktop publishing. So we had an Apple IIgs pretty early. And, you know, she'd do greeting cards and calendars and things. And it just generally got all of us using computers pretty early. And um, my dad actually is a really, uh, he's like a master machinist. He's, he actually works in real estate, but his passion is um, machining. And so I grew up around projects and building things and designing stuff and um, kind of a, a mix of that sort of art side of things and really working in the shop and building model airplanes and that kind of stuff. So I think in some way, getting into software um, w- was sort of a, a great way that a kid without heavy machinery could sit there and um, in the middle of the night make things out of your imagination, you know, and I just loved that feeling of being able to just create stuff and um, I remember for a few years in the beginning of high school I had this project where I was 3D modeling a castle and that was like hours and hours every day designing this castle.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting and you look at the path that you travel to get from academia getting your degrees, studying abroad, uh, being steeped in computer science, both here and over in Italy, I think, correct? Or is it, this...
1: Italian, Switzerland. Yeah. yeah,
0: and so, you know, you pick up your language skills, get a broad perspective on life, and then come back to Boulder, Colorado. And so you decide to start the business. And you started your business two years ago.
1: Yeah. And you started with how many employees? So actually, I started doing some consulting in Bali then uh, my brother started collaborating with me. He was out in California. So we had uh, two projects, actually almost three projects underway, really um, when I moved back here and we kind of got official and built a business. So um, we were working for an art dealer based in Madrid, uh, kind of building a pretty straightforward web platform for them to manage their collection. and. We had a project with the Asian Development Bank that was a geospatial analysis tool. So um, they had a problem where it would be really difficult to do due diligence on energy investment projects across Central Asia. And you know, they'd call the governor of a region in Tajikistan and ask for advice about where to put a wind farm, because they had allocated, you know, a hundred million for a wind farm to help support Tajikistan. And he'd say, well, you know, my cousin has a farm. It's a great place for it. And they just had a lot of challenges. And so generally, they would put out a request for proposals and have GIS consultants respond. And they had to go through a whole bidding, vetting process. And it just took forever until six months later, they'd get some PDF maps showing like, OK, here's where it would be. GIS is? Uh, Geospatial Information Systems. OK. It's a fancy way of digital maps. OK. And just putting data onto maps. Okay. And so um, for that project, I worked with a GIS consultant. And what we did is created a tool where we licensed data from a number of uh, data provider companies, also the Department of Energy, found a bunch of open data, and built a tool where they could, in essence, select Tajikistan and say, OK, show us the regions that have at least you know 10 meters per second of uh, average wind speed, Uh, at an 80 meter hub height. Mm -hmm. And so they could create a constraint like that and then hit enter and it would show the sweet spots on a map. And then they could add an additional constraint and say, you know, it must be less than this slope and it must be within a certain distance to a road and within a certain distance to a power line and have less than a certain population density and so on and so on. And then they could really narrow into the key spots to then actually fly out and investigate. Were they able to go, and if they had an energy project, could they go and check progress on development? Were they able to do real-time work? So this was just overlaying on top of Google Maps. Okay. So it was really more about um, doing their- Site selection. Research in advance, yeah. Okay. Um, And then we had a project with a company based in the UK. Uh, I taught a night class on programming in Clojure, this language that I've enjoyed using for the last eight years or so. And one of my students from that class ended up, um, a part of this, uh, sort of European research framework program around, uh, medical technologies. Mm -hmm. And so the idea with this project was to use a webcam that was in the corner of a room in like a rest home or maybe looking at a baby's crib Mm -hmm. and then just using, uh, video analysis, try to determine some health metrics, biometrics about breathing rate, heart rate, are they moving, are they having a heart attack, have they stopped breathing, so that you could signal some alerts to a nurse or a parent or whoever would be appropriate. So we were doing, um, we were really building out sort of an experimental signal processing framework to design algorithms uh, for that project.
0: So would, would you call that in the world that you're in now, in, between artificial intelligence and machine learning, which one, or is
1: that just programming in those days? So most of that was really um, just kind of, you know, system architecture and, and development. Mm-hmm. But I think what made them unique is that um, they were utilizing new types of algorithms or we had to design new algorithms for them. And so there are more question marks and a bit more exploration and um, a lot more research involved before we just uh, sat down and started typing, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that generally is becoming something more and more that uh, I feel like Think Topic is excelling at, is kind of tackling fresh problems that businesses or organizations are facing and they're maybe not quite sure how to approach it or what types of techniques would be appropriate or how hard of a problem is it even? Is it feasible at all? Or maybe it's really easy and just kind of helping work through that. You know, with, with
0: that being said, and we talked about this a little bit. So if I'm, I'm a business person listening uh, to the podcast and go, I have a particular problem or a need that maybe, maybe I don't even know if you can help and I don't even know how to approach you to ask if you can help. Is there a couple of projects that you can talk about without disclosing who they are and and sensitive data that sort of talks about what their need was and and what you guys did to to bring a solution to their problem?
1: Sure. So one of the next projects we worked with was with um, one of the largest cell phone uh, network companies. Um, You know, like... T-Mobile or AT&T mm-hmm. or something. And so there what we were trying to do was um, look at usage data from their users in terms of um, you know how many calls are they making, how many are getting dropped, are they calling people in or out of network, uh, in-country or out of country, um, potentially even the, the web of phone numbers that they're calling, and try to... Design some algorithms that could help the company to know who is likely to leave next month.
0: Predictive to some extent.
1: Yeah, so that that way they could make offers and say, Hey, you know, we're going to upgrade the antenna in your neighborhood. We realize you've been having some drop calls, and we'd like to give you a couple months free, because acquisition of new customers in that world is quite expensive, but the lifetime value is really high once you get them. So you really don't want to lose them once you have them. And so um, it's a fairly straightforward exercise to build a model that can take in a data set like that, predict who's likely to leave given historical data, and then you can train another model that actually uh, learns over time which type of offer is this person likely To benefit most from or likely to stick around because they were offered it, you know, because maybe people in different age groups are going to respond differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one type of problem. Uh, A totally different one might be a company locally here that is a manufacturer of um, products that are used in the home and home construction. And there are a lot of different options. Let's just say it's like a refrigerator Mm -hmm. manufacturer and every refrigerator is made custom. So the customer can check a bunch of boxes and choose which options and features they'd like. And um, they have a really great warranty on their product. And the problem is that they lose a significant amount of money every year because things get returned. And so the question is, how can you help figure out what are the combinations of options that might be leading to higher rates of failure? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's a type of analysis that's quite difficult with a regular, you know, spreadsheet, because it might be that it's only when you have a certain kind of paint mixed with a certain kind of joint mixed mm-hmm. with a certain other manufacturing procedure, or material, or other sets of features, and so. Um, and that kind of system, we can build a model that will, in essence, show you these are the subsets of features that are most likely to be causing problems.
0: And based on that result, if X was the quantity of returns that they were having after you guys got done working with them, what was their incidence of, of return? Did it change remarkably?
1: Don't know yet. Don't know yet?
0: Yeah. Yeah. When, when, you, when you do that with a customer, and so you've got this software doing its work. How busy or active are you still in that process of looking at data and, and and reframing what you're doing based on what you're getting?
1: Yeah, you know, that's really something that more and more we've been starting to think about. So I think a lot of people imagine that projects like this are kind of a, a one-off effort where you build something, deliver it, you know, it's like Photoshop or something. One and done. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't tend to be how it ever works out. Um, no doubt you could do that if you wanted to. But once you see that, oh, we just implemented this new model and it's saving us customers, you're going to want to keep improving it. You know, There's clear value there, and so also you can start making better decisions based on now that you have this model what other things could you do or what other types of offers might there be or maybe we can have the model generate offers and do automated experiments to see which ones would work best and so um, there tends to be a lot of follow-on but um, what we do with most of our projects is we actually set up a website for each project and then we're just week to week updating with our latest results and sometimes those are live algorithms running, sometimes they're just sort of a presentation of results of something that might have taken hundreds of hours of computation in the background.
0: If I'm a business owner out there and and I want to reach out to you, and before I get too far down the road, um, if they want to reach you, Jeff, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Yeah, so um, they can visit the website thinktopic.com And we've got places to leave us a note there, or they can email me directly, jeff at thinktopic.com.
0: Okay, super. I wanted to make sure we got that done before we go too far out in the weeds and talking. You know, so I'm, I'm a business owner. And, you know, what's a minimum dollar figure or project size that
1: is in your arena? It's a good question. And one that we've been asking ourselves as well, because there is some sort of boot up time for any given project um that said uh we've also been exploring doing a bit more consulting even outside of developing software itself but really just in terms of helping bring some structure to a problem and give some advice um so i don't know that at this point we really have given ourselves a limit you know i think um after some initial conversations, it could be anywhere, it, you know, like kind of a, say, ten thousand dollar range to do a small project of just a, a few days of really design sessions and help work through a set of problems, mm-hmm. and um, up to hundreds of thousands or millions if it's something that's going to take a team to be really building out a platform over you know a year or two.
0: You know, it's and and for the the person out there. And, you know, what I'm looking for for the business owner, so let's say the business owner has what looks like a large quantity of variables as far as they're concerned and trying to take and gather intel from the variables they have, and so they have a database, hopefully, of what they're trying to do, and you go, well, at a minimum, I know this is going to cost me 10 grand to talk to you about it, and then you guys can say we can help you or we can't, and so that gives them a frame of reference to kind of start with. And I see a number of other companies that I'm familiar with that has just really just to get started and, and get going, it's about that much allocation of people's time, effort, and, and so on. You know, in, in thinking about your business and as we were talking, you've gone from you and your brother to 24 employees and I don't know how many dogs, Yeah, at least one, yeah. at least one. And so that's really rapid. So going from what you were doing in in the tech world to being the business owner and having employees and stuff, describe, if you can, that process for you.
1: Yeah, it's been a real learning process, no question. Um, Going from a kind of lone wolf grad student vagabond to a... uh, manager and generally um, needing to think about strategy and how to approach a lot of problems. It's been, yeah, it, luckily, I've had uh, my brother helping me out a lot with uh, thinking through things. and my co-founders also, uh, Chris and Charles, the four of us really um, kicked things off in the beginning. It's been great to have people to, you know, bounce ideas off of and really work through problems. But luckily, we're all very project oriented and we tend to just dive into what we're working on and we really enjoy it. And so um, we've grown quite organically just as we had uh, new clients and we needed people to staff projects and um, it's, it's hard to find people. So we really have um, kind of just grown as we've found the right people to join the team. And so we have been hiring, I think, continuously but it's a slow trickle.
0: It's interesting in in a number of other folks that I've talked to up and down the front range and they say the big challenge is qualified folks. Yeah. to come in and and you know and that wouldn't have been my first choice on the answer. And you know for you guys you're looking for very specific skill sets and if if somebody's listening to the podcast and is interested in what you guys do on the on your website you have a list of people you're looking for right now and what skill sets they should possess. And you know, I came in here, everybody's really friendly. It was cool to see the dogs coming by, you know, and, and uh, it's a friendly and inviting place. So that's, that's good to see. And I, I get the feeling that you work until the project is done.
1: I think it's not a trait unique to myself that uh, we're not workaholics by any means. Uh, we don't put in crazy hours here. Mm-hmm. Um, And we really try not to because that's just not sustainable. And we want to be able to um, make this last over the long haul, you know, unlike a venture backed startup where we have a runway and everything's going to die unless we, you know, meet some benchmarks or get enough clients within the next eight months or something. um, We don't have that kind of situation. We are just Doing good work, providing value, and the only way that we can get good people is by providing a great workplace and making it a good existence and creating a good quality of life. Getting to work on interesting problems, and so we we really try to keep the right balance of being serious and doing good work and um, producing good quality stuff and continuing to learn. Here we have. Uh, guy who used to be a math professor who actually teaches a math class every week to everyone who wants to join and we do um, kind of paper research paper sessions together and we're really trying to keep ourselves up with the the state-of-the-art and keep things pushing forward. With the organization populated by this many folks
0: that have fairly specific technical expertise when you're looking at growing your business and setting the business plan to to look out at and, and, and future revenue and who's new clients. What are you guys doing uh, to address um, marketing for your firm?
1: We've not been taking a typical approach, in part because we are kind of designing the business into something that we want to work on, mm-hmm. as opposed to maximizing profit and luckily since we don't need to answer to investors we can do that and so um we for example uh we have a big project with condonest and so we helped them build the new style.com and worked on a bunch of image processing and personalization and recommendations and a whole suite of technologies uh behind that site and we recognized you know, a year and a half, two years ago, that there were opportunities in the e-commerce space, but it wasn't something that got us excited. And so we've really kind of taken a tact of seeking out clients in areas that we're interested in learning about and that we could see ourselves wanting to put extra effort into create technologies in those spaces, to find strategic partners in those spaces, so a lot of our marketing has actually been reaching out to companies that we're impressed with, that we would like to collaborate with, okay. and then um, seeing if there's a place where we could fit. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, I think about that and,
0: and the luxury of not having to answer. You know, it gives you the freedom of choice. You know, and, and you were talking about the projects that get you excited. Lately, what are the, either future project or current project? Uh, what's the one got you most
1: excited right now? Yeah, there are two areas uh, lately that I've been really excited about. Um, one is in um, satellite image analysis, and the other is in uh, biotechnology. Pretty different types of problems and systems, but I think that there's uh, a lot of interesting stuff happening in these two domains, and not a lot of um, machine learning has been applied and th- there's, there's just wide open space for innovation and new ideas. And so um, in the satellite space um, we were lucky enough to make some connections with Digital Globe here nearby in Westminster. Um, they have the best earth-facing satellites in orbit today and their primary customer for the last few decades has been the um, Defense Department and foreign governments. And a few years ago, Congress allowed them to start uh, selling imagery to um, companies and organizations. I'm pretty sure Google Maps and Bing Maps use uh, digital globe imagery for a number of their layers And so we've been doing some work with them. We have an algorithm deployed into their platform that can um, find cars from space. And we can produce density maps of cars. We can look at them through time. And that's really just a proof of concept for us. We built a lot of different types of models that can um, do what we call segmentation, where we can actually look at a satellite image and sort of paint a mask over any object of interest and we can train these models based on different classes of objects. And Mm so um, I'm really excited about some of the possibilities of um, what we're going to be able to enable over the next few years in terms of just Earth understanding, understanding how ecosystems are changing, understanding how people are moving, immigration patterns, urban growth. Um, There are all kinds of different commercial applications, tracking things. So I think there's a ton of great work to do there, and we're hoping to uh, continue down that path. And then in biotech, we've been um, just kicking off some projects with some companies here locally, and that is in um, diagnostic development and in um, using neural networks and machine learning models to analyze Uh, data coming from um, some of their uh, proteomic analysis technology. So in essence, we get results from a very sophisticated blood test that shows the set of concentrations of various molecules in the bloodstream. And then we're working on uh, developing models to help make diagnostic decisions or predictions or sort of score people based on that information. The great thing in both of these efforts, particularly in the biotech, is that we get to work with experts who have been doing this for years and um, then just really kind of bring our unique form of analysis and programming capabilities to problems that they've been working on for years. If, If I'm a business owner
0: and I'm interested in solving what I think is a particular problem or challenge that I have, to have a data set that's useful, what volume or duration of data do you have to have before you really can start creating intelligence from the data?
1: It's a good question and it's almost always the first challenge we have to overcome in new projects because oftentimes, even if there is data, it might not have been collected with um, these new goals in mind so sometimes we can repurpose old data. Sometimes we actually need to build new systems to gather the data that's appropriate. Sometimes we actually synthesize the data by writing programs that generate it. Um, it's actually not a straightforward answer to just say, you know, you need a megabyte or yep. something. Um, so actually what it comes down to is the, so when, when you create a machine learning model, in essence what you're doing is writing a program that's taking in some data and adjusting its parameters based on what data it's been exposed to so far with the goal of sort of modeling that data to kind of understand it. Meaning what are the set of states that that data can take and what do those states mean? And so the amount of data that you need corresponds to the complexity of the, the sort of system that that data represents. So if you were looking at data about, let's say, um, how long someone sleeps. Mm -hmm. There's not really so much complexity in that. You can get a whole lot of timers or something looking at how long people are sleeping, but you're generally just going to end up looking at some kind of curve and seeing how much they sleep. But if instead, if you're trying to understand, say, uh, how someone's facial expression when they walk into a store corresponds to how much they're likely to purchase Then the space of facial expressions and purchasing interests. And it's just huge. And you would need a lot of data, a lot, many faces and many transactions in order to start making those connections, because it's just a much more complex system that you're trying to build a model to understand. In,
0: In talking with some folks down where I'm at, they were talking about the, the, the need for cybersecurity and some issues. Do you think that it's possible within the machine learning or artificial intelligence world to be predictive on, say, who's going to be subject to a hack?
1: That's a good question. You know, I think that there's little doubt that you could make those predictions. My question would be what data would you have available in order to train the model? because you know for example if you could know that all of your competitors have gotten hacked in the last few days no doubt that would dramatically affect the probability that you're likely to get hacked next because someone's going down the list in your industry but companies don't tend to share with their competitors they may not know whether they're getting hacked or maybe they don't know yet mm-hmm. and so i think there there is a lot of predictive capability but oftentimes it's just sort of getting sensors in the right places is is one of the real challenges do you guys get involved in weather predictability or not no we um haven't done anything related to weather funny you ask one of our employees is really interested in weather modeling and actually was running his own weather model for a while and so we had a lecture just internally here all about how weather prediction works a week or two ago
0: It's an interesting, you know, variable. It seems like, you know, being a forecaster is a thankless job like being an economist. You know, you don't really have to be right, but you're still employed, you know, that kind of thing. So for for things that you're doing here internally and the interaction with the employees, there's probably been a role model or two that have been really influential for you throughout your life. Who would you say is probably the most
1: influential role model and how come? It's a tough question because I don't think that I have... Any one person, you know, it kind of seems like in in different aspects of life or of the kinds of things we work on, I've had different role models. Um, We actually have uh, an advisor here in town, uh, David Goldberg, who is someone that I um, did some work for while I was a student. He's a local entrepreneur who's had, I think, like 30 or 40 businesses and lots of patents and has done a lot of interesting work. And I learned a lot from him early on about just um, kind of good application of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually came from biology and um, just uh, learned a lot in a project there actually doing... um, We built a facial recognition system to organize photographs that runs on the largest cruise ships in the world. I think about uh, discussions we've had fairly often, and then um, in terms of business, I worked at a place in Holland called Global Orange, and I had two really great bosses there who just um, were really helpful for me to see how kind of a a friendly work atmosphere that was both productive while also being relaxed, and yeah, I I learned a bit there about how to just kind of um, organize a business, you know, sure. not that I haven't figured out by any means, but <laughs>
0: well you're still here, yeah, you know and, and thinking about your day for the folks that are going like, you know, I'd like to organize my day like you do just early riser, meditate, run, work out, how do
1: you organize your day? I'm a night owl, so uh, I often will go to bed at three a m um, and wake up at eight or nine or something and just come into the office um. So I don't have any real uh, dramatic morning routine. Uh, I tend to uh, take my dog out trail running after work. It's one of the great benefits of being in Boulder. A lot of people from the office go climbing or hiking or running or mountain biking and do a fair amount of mountain biking after work. So um, that kind of tends to be the typical routine.
0: For team building and, and transmitting culture inside your business, What's the top one or two things you think you guys do here that makes sure the culture permeates the organization?
1: Um, to tell the truth, I think uh, Darwin, who's just shaking off right there, is actually one important aspect of the culture. Just in creating a sort of more friendly atmosphere where you know people are throwing a ball to the dog every once in a while. and In terms of kind of a technical or sort of more academic culture we really have a lot of great sessions around a whiteboard and working through research papers together and um, having a group of us uh, you know kind of tackle an algorithm together or look at someone's results and come up with ideas about how we could improve things Um, so a lot of it is just through sort of informal interaction like that but To tell the truth, one thing we've recognized is being a consultancy and having a set of different projects. It does actually create kind of partitions across the company where um, we. uh, It's something we want to keep thinking more about and work on more as to how to kind of get us all collaborating more often. Just because it's so easy for everyone to be off working on their current project. I'm a little distracted. I'm
0: I'm petting Darwin over here, who just got up. He's a very well-mannered office dog unlike my dog, who is not. Uh, you know, in thinking about project management inside your your, your company, and if you have a number of te- people working on the team, how do you guys, is there a piece of software or, or a technique that you do to manage the project?
1: Yeah, you know, we've gone through a number of iterations on how to... So, you know, when we all were sitting around one table, it was pretty easy. And then... Um, for about the first year, just about the whole company would go to lunch together every day, which um, actually has the nice side benefit of cutting out a lot of need for formal communication. But as we've grown, we've needed to get a bit more organized. So at the moment we use a web app called Clubhouse that is a kind of typical kind of Trello type Kanban board. So each project will have a set of cards corresponding to kind of tasks that are on deck and tasks that are being worked on currently, and um, that at least gives us some kind of insight into what's going on, who's working on what, and how are things moving forward.
0: Looking back over the past couple of years, if, if you could go back to a time where you had an aha moment, and everybody has them, I think, and they're different, if you were to look back and one of the more meaningful aha moments
1: that you've had here in the past couple of years running your company it's hard because I feel like we've had a lot of aha moments Um, being new uh, entrepreneurs results in a lot of learning experiences so uh, they happen pretty often I guess um, Maybe some of the aha moments that have been really helpful for me, particularly since um, we're working in a lot of different companies, uh, interacting with a lot of different types of company cultures and uh, different roles within those businesses. It's been an important lesson to learn how to. Um, how to best organize things to work and collaborate with other companies. Because that can be challenging. There are often egos involved or different structures around how they think about organizing projects or um, how they expect things to be delivered. And um, I think it's become increasingly important or we've just recognized more and more how important it is to um, get clarity around a lot of the ways that we communicate and how things will be delivered and, um, who's doing what and just try to really be as upfront as possible with a lot of those kinds of company to company and managing That's, expectation. Yeah. Expectations and, um, learning, you know, I think it's easy as an outsider to kind of, come in thinking you can have a lot of great ideas and shake things up and make stuff happen. And uh, I, I could imagine that that doesn't necessarily feel too great for an insider. And so it has to be navigated carefully.
0: I would imagine that that was a few discussions here and there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you, we think about um, best moments, worst moments, you know, along the way. What do you think your your, your worst moment
1: by far having to let someone go. Um, I really don't enjoy those moments. Um, whether it's been they were actually, uh, you know, great people and skilled and motivated but just not the right fit for that role or you know someone that just wasn't performing that, that either way, it's tough when you know you sort of have a company like this that, does have a bit more of kind of a family type atmosphere, and we really try and, you know, go out and do things together and take care of each other. So it's um, that, that's a tough thing.
0: Yeah, I, w- I personally I would have a hard time thinking I got to the point where I enjoyed letting people go. Yeah, yeah, that that would I think be a separate
1: challenge for me to to go and I have not enjoyed that aspect at all and. Um, In terms of great moments, I think that's something that um, particularly my brother is great at celebrating, you know, like when we uh, get new stuff working. And in software, you know, we're building things that kind of have lots of moving parts and um, it's exciting when you finally turn on a new system and it does the right thing and so we really try to celebrate our creations
0: within the company i I was talking to another um, uh, group the other day and they were talking about transparency on where they're going revenues what level of transparency do you have with respect to revenues with the team do you talk about that much or is it part of your management style
1: yeah you know it's something that just this year we decided um, we wanted to share more Um, I don't know that we were really trying to not share previously, but um, to tell the truth, we were just so focused on work that um, it hadn't been something we had really decided anything about. It just by default had been kept private. And so um, at this point uh, we've really just shown kind of um, some high level financials to the whole company about, how we're doing in terms of, you know, revenue and profits. And um, generally uh, for a company that's only a couple years old, things are all headed in the right direction.
0: You know, when you were thinking about making, you know, going from being really busy and saying, you know, we really wanna make a conscious effort to share this information.
1: Take me through the thought process on why that was important to you. It's a good question. There is a, a balance there and it's something we're still trying to figure out. So part of it is that you know as you build a team and you have some people naturally kind of emerging as leaders and um people who it really seems like are going to be uh bringing more and more to the business and they're interested in helping it grow that they want to know how stuff is going and i think um you want to include those people and have them be helping think through business problems or understand the the real state of the world and not be kind of left in the dark. So part of it, I think, has been motivated by wanting to collaborate with the rest of the team and be open and not have, uh, you know, any kind of closed door meetings and stuff, but to be able to benefit from the ideas of other people on the team and the input and the experience of people who've um, run other businesses in the past. And so um, I think it's also a matter of just um, kind of respect. And Hmm. some people just want to know because that's where they make their livelihood and that's where they spend a lot of their day and they just want to know, you know, it's kind of like what's the health of your family. Um, On the other hand, that kind of has to be balanced with not wanting to, you know, maybe scare people or freak people out or bring additional stresses to people who otherwise might be perfectly happy and focused on their job and you don't want them to have to also be worrying about maybe you know the ups and downs of a consultancy where we might have a uh, projects are coming and going all the time and it can be stressful sometimes when we need to make sure we're covering payroll but some projects have stopped and something else hasn't started yet and so um, we have to, I think, saddle a bit of that as the um, founders and try not to uh, kind of share the stress with everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really still a question that it's a discussion we're still having and something um, I would like more advice on from people who've kind of experimented in different aspects of that conversation.
0: Yeah, I've seen it all over the page, honestly you know, full disclosure to, you know, limited disclosure to no disclosure. Um, you know, you were, you were mentioning in working with the team and it struck me uh, after looking at your website, you guys do some unique team building uh, events periodically. What do you think's the most unique or most appreciated team building event that you guys have done?
1: My favorite was actually uh, one of our employees invited us all up to uh, his home in the mountains. And he's actually a great chef and cooked a wonderful meal. And we just had a big party up there. Um, That was actually one of my favorites. Um, We also lucked out and we ended up um, on the field down in Denver for the last baseball game of the season. And we were uh, literally like 20, 30 feet behind the right fielder, right down on the grass and uh, just had a really fun time there and they had fireworks after the game and stuff. So, um, that was pretty neat, but I'm hoping this summer to get everyone out rafting,
0: you know, in, in thinking about what we've talked about here, and we've kind of been around the map on your company and what you think and and your growth, I guess, you know, in, in closing, um, you know, if there was a parting piece of guidance to somebody that's sort of on your trajectory, they've, They've come out of another company and they're thinking about whether they want to start one themselves. Is there a piece of advice or guidance you might offer them?
1: Yeah, I guess some things I've thought to myself that were um, surprising. One is in some ways, it's actually a lot easier than you expect. The sort of the concrete steps to form a company and build a business are very straightforward. You fill out forms, you make phone calls, you do deals. You know, there's kind of legwork that has to be done, but there's no black magic. It's just doing it. And I'm sure we've made thousands of mistakes all along the way, but in the grand scheme of things, it's just about pushing forward and making sure that you're doing a good enough job that it's worth people paying you for it. So I think I somehow had larger mental barriers thinking that it would be... Really tough, more in kind of the technical side of things. Because, you know, as a computer nerd, I was always focused on the technical side of things. And in the end, I would say that that has generally not been the challenge. Um, the challenge has been much more on the social side of things that um, most of us are less experienced in, and just understanding how to work with a larger group of people and how to. Um, find and interact with the right kinds of companies and how to recognize when, you know, sometimes you you end up talking to someone who seems like they want to collaborate and you have meeting after meeting after meeting and nothing ever happens. And other times you talk with someone one time and then you're kicked off and you've got a signed contract the next week. And um, so I think I still would like to do a lot more reading and learning around um, really interacting with people And managing people and interacting with you know other businesses Uh, particularly if, if you come from the tech side I think that's just hugely valuable.
0: The thing that I always enjoy is I get to learn a lot and I'm sure there are things that I have failed to ask you that I really should have and I would expect the folks that are listening to this podcast if they have further questions I'm sure they will call and ask you to see if you can bring your particular brand of solution to their challenge and problem. But I sincerely appreciate your time.
1: Thanks a lot, Bob. You betcha. It was really great. Cheers.